Ladies and gentlemen, December has arrived. May your days and nights be merry and bright. Welcome to the 6th of December 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18, 1640. Since those early humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has grown to become, in the 21st century, one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you are here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history, and I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. By the age of 52 years, Edmund C. Converse had a notable impact on American business. According to The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930, book published in 1986 by the Junior League of Greenwich. On today's show, you'll hear about his estate, Conyers Manor. Quote, not only did Conyers Manor overshadow the other grandly conceived homes in Greenwich, it was also one of the most profitable estates in the Northeast, unquote. On Talk of the Town, we'll share an encore conversation from 2018 that I had with Stephen Bishop, chair of the Greenwich Historic District Commission. The commission has been in the news recently with preservation activities underway regarding the Samuel Ferris House, built in 1760 in Riverside, and the Havemeyer Building on Greenwich Avenue. On the Judge's Corner, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard wrote about Cedar Cliff, the home of actor Edwin Booth, which in turn became the site of the Coscob Power Plant and today, Coscob Park. It was 100 years ago when Greenwich resident William G. Rockefeller died on December 1st, 1922. I'll have some information about that. In a related bit of history, Erwin Edwards penned a piece for his column, Greenwich Life as it is and was regarding Greenwich and the relationship with the Standard Oil Company. We'll go back to the year 1778 as found in Before 2000, a chronology of the town of Greenwich, 1640 to 1999. Well, my friends, tis the season. Christmas is in the air. Hanukkah is in the air. The December holidays are in the air. There's a lot for you to see, do, and enjoy this month. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most extraordinary and interesting communities. We're going to have all this and more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, 
Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound Looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American Diplomatic Corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office, at 203-485-7595. As Christmas and the December holidays rapidly approach, let us cherish family and friends this holiday season, and with it, a season filled with warm moments and delightful memories. Ladies and gentlemen, mark your calendars for Thursday, the 1st of December. Why? Well, the Greenwich Historical Society's annual Winter Market Cocktail Reception will be held at Christchurch Greenwich. That's at 254 East Putnam Avenue, 5.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Suggested donation is $20. A portion of the 
evening's proceeds will go to support the Greenwich Historical Society's programs in education, the arts, and historic preservation. The annual winter market continues from December 1st through 3rd, or 9.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. at Christchurch Greenwich in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Again, 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. on Friday, December 2nd, and 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday, December 3rd. You can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. The magic of Christmas and holiday traditions come alive on Saturday, the 3rd of December, the 10th of December, and the 17th of December with Christmas in Cuscob, a holiday tour of the Bush Holly House. On this special holiday tour of the Bush Holly House, visitors will enjoy a festive walk through early 20th century Christmas and holiday traditions enjoyed by adults and children of the Holly family in the era of the Cuscob Art Colony and learn about early American wintertime and holiday celebrations as observed in the era of the new nation among the Bush family and their Greenwich neighbors. Tours last approximately 45 minutes and are appropriate for adults and families with children age 5 and older. My friends, masks are required for staff and visitors on the Bush Holly House tours. And again, learn more and register, please, at GreenwichHistory.org. Join us for a fun-filled afternoon of holiday adventure. Based on a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, the Stead Fast Tin Soldier is a charming holiday puppet show that tells the story of an old-fashioned tin soldier who lives among a bunch of other toys and whose job it is to keep everyone safe. One a disgruntled jack-in-the-box who stirs up trouble, the steadfast tin soldier must decide what to do in this festive holiday's tale. Date is December 4th, times 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. and 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Register at GreenwichHistory.org. The Greenwich Historical Society's Holiday Family Festival is on Saturday, the 10th of December, at the Bush Holly House Campus, 47 Strickland Road in Cuscob, 4.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Bring your entire family for photos with Santa. Visit our festive dollhouse display in the historic barn, complete with gingerbread decorating and crafts in Santa's workshop. In our museum lobby, admire the festive wonderland that is the Festival of Trees, featuring community-crafted trees by local designers, merchants, nonprofit organizations, and garden clubs. Choose your favorite of the trees and bid in a silent auction to take it home. Take part in the holiday cheer and enjoy a winter beverage while listening to performances by the Connecticut Yuletide Carolers. Enjoy delicious treats from the crispy melty cheese truck as they dish out classic grilled cheese and tomato soup. Mm, that sounds good. And explore the Historical Society's beautifully illuminated grounds. Delight in the artistic prowess of professional ice sculptor Bill Bywater as he creates a wintry marvel from giant blocks of ice. Warm up outside by the fire with some s'mores and hot cocoa to round out an evening of holiday fun. Registration and administration are required in advance, and my friends, you can do that by going to Greenwich History. Dot org. If you have any questions, please call area code 203-869-6899. Again, that's area code 203-869-6899.
Well, my friends, welcome to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. I am Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. Talk of the Town features insightful stories and conversations with Greenwich, Connecticut history makers and personalities. For today's 6th of December 22 show, I went back into our show archives to the year 2018. Stephen Bishop is the chair of the Greenwich Historic District Commission, and I had a very, very insightful conversation with him then, and I'd like to share it with you again. The Historic District Commission reviews proposed changes to structures and landscapes within historic districts, provides the Planning and Zoning Commission with comments on applications, and promotes the concept of preserving historic structures and landscapes in the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Historic Overlay, or HO as it's also called, is a designation. It's a tool used by planning and zoning to encourage retention of notable structures by providing economic incentive through the easing of zoning restrictions in return for permanent deed restrictions, including mandatory review of any changes to historic assets in the historic overlay. Without further delay, here is my conversation with Stephen Bishop, chair of the Greenwich Historic District Commission from year 2018. Now, throughout America, there are sections of towns and cities containing older buildings considered valuable for historical or architectural reasons or both. Greenwich is no exception. Our town is fortunate that citizens have organized themselves to seek legal protections from certain adverse types of development so that historic districts could remain in perpetuity. With us today on Talk of the Town is Mr. Stephen Bishop, chairman of the Historic District Commission of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Good morning and welcome to the show and I wanted to know would you tell us about your professional background and your connections to Greenwich history well as, as you know my name is Stephen Bishop and I'm the chairman of the historic district commission for the town of Greenwich uh, I'm an attorney um, although my attorney work doesn't necessarily get me into historic preservation what really got me into that was uh, I bought a very old house uh, on Taconic Road in Greenwich a mm-hmm. uh, house built in 1732 um, which was in very, very bad condition. Uh, and my wife and I restored it. And uh, one thing led to another. We really enjoyed it. it. took a year and a half before we could live in it. And um, then I became more interested in the local historic district, which was uh, uh, established in on Taconic Road. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I joined, was asked to join the commission. And not too much longer after that, I was asked to be chairman. So Congratulations. <laughs> At least you. I think so. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Now, do you have any personal connections to Greenwich history, your ancestry, or anything? Yeah. Well, yes, I, I actually do. Yeah. Um, my my mother is a Mead, actually. Oh, we're probably cousins. <laughs> yeah, oh, probably. well, all right. Yeah, everybody <laughs> is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. Well, good. Then you're in the right place. Then very mm-hmm. nice. All right. Now we hear and read about the historic district commission in the news from time to time, especially in Greenwich Free Press. Um, and uh, so, when was the commission started, and why, and what's its mission? Okay, well, I'm going to have to, I I tried to actually find out uh, when it was established, and I really have to take a good guess. I'm thinking around 1975, Mm -hmm. and I know that a a very important early um, uh, founder or or motivator of that whole thing was a guy named Paul Vanderstrip. Good friend of mine, yes. I think that he may have been the one that pushed for the establishment of it. Yes. Just presuming that. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's been, you know, going strong. There's been many, many commission members, many, many chairmen since then, and uh, it's it's continued to operate ever since. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what its mission is? Uh, the, the the historic 
district commission actually has it's it sort of evolved and expanded as the years go by. Sure. Um, our main our main job and and what's really set up under state statute is to uh, establish historic uh, districts, mm-hmm. of which there are three in Greenwich, and also historic properties. Yes. Um, which is the same thing, except they're individual properties. They're not a district or a grouping of, right. of properties. That that was the original uh, task, and then, and then sort of govern those um, after they're established. But since then, planning and zoning has asked us to do a number of other things. Uh, one of which we we give advisory opinions mm-hmm. to historic properties, um, especially properties that are in the National Register of Historic Places. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and also, uh, we now give, uh, opinions about, um, historic overlay, which is, uh, the newest thing, uh, mm-hmm. to promote, um, preservation mm-hmm. in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how often does the, uh, commission meet and, um, and are the meetings open to the public? Meetings are absolutely open to the public mm-hmm. and we meet once a month, except mm-hmm. that we try to take August off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get a summer vacation. We get a too, summer like, vacation, like, right. like most normal people. Congratulations! Right, 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 <laughs> right. right, right, right. Now, now, yeah. Uh, so we will occasionally have a special meeting. Yes. If we have to, something urgent comes up or mm-hmm. gets carried over, we will have a special meeting. Sure, okay. but it's rare. Yeah. All right. Now, now um, we hear the, the term uh, historic district used qu- uh, quite often. So, could you give us a definition? Of what is an historic district? And if you would talk us through the process uh, of a district's formation and the rules that uh, that govern them. Okay. Well, when you say historic district, you're probably meaning a local historic district, yes. which is established under the Connecticut statutes uh, about historic districts. Mm-hmm. It's under uh, Section 17-147A okay. and all that follows that. Yeah. And uh, that is probably the highest level of preservation that you can get mm-hmm. in, in the state of Connecticut, right. federal or state. That is really the highest level mm-hmm. of preservation you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to become an historic district, um, there has to be a study. Um, there's usually some uh, his, local historian or somebody that knows uh, historic architecture does a study. Mm-hmm. It gets submitted to the state uh, preservation office uh, for their review. They have to accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be accepted by the Board of Selectmen. They have to endorse it. Mm-hmm. Um, it then uh, uh, has to be voted on. By the people in the district, and it has so it's not imposed on them. Really, they impose it upon themselves. Right. Two thirds of the people in the proposed district have to vote in favor of it for it to be law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it then has to be approved by the RTM. Um, I may have that backwards. Maybe the RTM first, and then then the vote. Right. But the RTM also has to approve it. Mm. it it's quite cumbersome. It, it probably takes to do a district. Uh, it probably take you close to a year. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. And, yeah. and again, you don't want to impose anything on the owners that they don't want. So um, yeah. no, although it does only take it two thirds that someone can be pulled in. But yeah. uh, we try to avoid that. I, yeah. I like uh, my personal view is that I, I want historic preservation to be positive. Yes. I want it to be something that people want and and view it as a positive and not as a negative. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a number of historic districts in in the town of Greenwich, and there's always a potential for more. And I was wondering if you could list these and describe them, in, maybe in just in general terms, uh, for sure, us. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. We have three uh, local historic districts in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. The first is uh, is Strickland Road Historic District, oh, yes. and this is the one that I believe Paul Vanderstrick um, 
spearheaded. And of course, that's in the area around the Greenwich Historical Society, but continuing up Strickland Road. Mm-hmm. And then it was expanded to, uh, to include Mill Pond, oh, yeah. which are basically post-war houses, but the people there wanted yeah. to be part of it yeah. because they wanted to protect that kind of feel. Mm-hmm. At least this is my understanding. I was not on the board at that time. Yeah. Um, but they didn't want to you know, have McMansions all around their nice little capes. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's part of it. Um, the next one, there was one done for uh, Round Hill Road Historic District. Mm-hmm. This is a fairly small one. It's basically on the corner in, at the intersection of Round Hill Road and John Street. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it includes the old church there and, and uh, I guess, the rectory next to the yeah, church. Yeah, right next to it, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, very nice. And it does also include the little sign mm-hmm. in the middle of the circle, which, oh, yes. which has historic uh, yep. significance. Yep. And the last one is the one that I live in, and that's the Sandwich Historic District. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that, you know, runs along Taconic Road um, from about where the old church was. They don't use it much as a church anymore, the, except occasionally the Stanwich Congregational Church. Oh, yeah. And runs north all the way up to the intersection with the North Stanwich Road mm-hmm. um, and encompasses most of the properties along there. And a very picturesque area. Uh, it yeah, really yes. is. I'm very well, familiar I, with I like it, to think yeah. so, yes. I, yeah. uh, and, of course, you live there. So. I live there. <laughs> <laughs> so, very, very good. So, My friends, you've been listening to a conversation that I had in 2018 with Stephen Bishop, chair of the Greenwich, Connecticut Historic District Commission. This is Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good, located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church. Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Mm. 
you are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Welcome back to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich to Town for All Seasons show podcast on December 6, 2022. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead and I am your host. On this segment, we feature insightful stories and conversations from Greenwich, Connecticut history makers and personalities. On today's show, we're featuring an encore broadcast of a conversation that I had in 2018 with Stephen Bishop, the chair of the Greenwich Historic District Commission. We also hear the term, and I see this uh, reported on, um, what is called a certificate of appropriateness. Right. Uh, so uh, descri- talk to us about that. Describe it for us. Okay, okay. Well, if you live in an historic uh, district or you own an historic property uh, and you want to make a change to the exterior of your house, you need to put in an application, which is very simple, mm-hmm. uh, very, you know, five five or six lines, and then maybe some pictures or plans that show us what you want to do mm-hmm. to the exterior of your house. And then you'll come before the commission, and we'll make a determination. You know, we have to determine that it's appropriate yeah. before you can get a building permit to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to say, first of all, we have nothing to say about what goes on inside the house. Right. You can do anything you want inside yeah. the house. Yeah. Uh, and we try very, very hard to work with people uh, to, to make whatever change they need, addition, mm-hmm. more light, what, whatever it is, to make it work. We want it to work. Yeah. I don't want it to be uh, a big burden. I want houses to work in the 21st century because if they don't continue to work, they won't survive. That's right. There's that demolition option that's out there, <laughs> you know, which we know all right. too much about. Here. Yes, yes, yes. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you're not there to, to micromanage what goes on inside the Absolutely house. Absolutely not. Absolutely you know, remodeling not. Remodeling or anything no, like and, that. Well, and, and we work extremely hard with yeah. people to make what they want to do work yes. for them as well as us. Yes. To preserve the character, but have a house that they can live in and, and, and function in. Yeah, so it's kind of a partnership, really. If it is. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. It is, uh, absolutely. All right, absolutely. Now, now, we also um, we hear the term historic zone. Um, and uh, what role does the commission have in, in, in their creation? Uh, do you, can you talk about that? I, I'm, I'm, historic zone is sort of a – I'm not sure what you're – what that's getting at, you know, we have this new historic overlay. Oh, yeah, that's what I mean, yes. Historic yes. overlay, yeah. which are, has been around in down, the downtown area yeah. in commercial properties for yeah. quite a while. Right. But um, myself, along with some other preservation people in town, the yeah. Greenwich Preservation Trust, the Greenwich Historical Society, yeah. all felt that we needed to do something to try to stop the demolitions of some extremely significant properties. Mm-hmm. And we have lost some real heartbreakers. Yes, we have. Um, so, you know, a short of making it a, a local historic district, which basically they have to agree to, mm-hmm. my, our feeling was that the only way you can do this is you give people some incentive yes. to, keep, to maintain their, their historic property. Mm-hmm. So we got the, 
Planning and Zoning passed a new regulation, um, which is, here I have the book, it's uh, under 6-109, mm -hmm. uh, Historic Overlay Zone. And what this does is uh, it, a property owner, if they thought they had an historic property, would first come to the Historic District Commission, and we would say, yeah, we think this is a very significant property, or this architecture is great, or the house is in very original condition, mm -hmm. and ought to be granted some benefits. Yeah. Then they go to P&Z, and if P&Z agrees, mm -hmm. uh, they can get some significant uh, benefits. They can get an increase in FAR. Mm -hmm. um, they can actually get an extra unit, extra living unit mm -hmm. on, on the property. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you can get some real benefits. And actually, we've already had several come in, mm -hmm. and we have approved them. And uh, those houses are now protect protected forever. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and FAR refers to floor area ratio. Correct. Yeah, yeah, for correct, those that correct, don't correct, know correct, what that means. Right, yeah. Right, right, okay. Right. Now, um, another question that I had uh, for you, because I would, I would say that surfing on a commission – uh, such as this one is not a piece of cake. Um, it, it has its challenges and all. So I wanted to know if you would talk to us, uh, talk us through the challenges that you and the other commission members face, you know, when you're deliberating over uh, matters that, um, that that come before you, just in general terms. You don't have to go into specifics if you don't Okay, mind. well, of course, especially with this new HO uh, rule, we'll have to determine uh, whether a property is significant, yeah. uh, whether it's it's merits getting mm -hmm. the kind of benefits that they can get, right. um, and uh, that's going to be have to be an ongoing kind of thing. Yeah. As I say, we've only seen a couple of them, yeah. uh, but the couple that we've seen have been beautiful properties that mm -hmm. are now protected. Right. But the owners got something significant in return. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that that, but it remains to be seen how that works out coming down the road. Mm -hmm. um, and then in terms of giving certificates of appropriateness, of course, there's always questions. Is this appropriate? Is that appropriate? You know, almost invariably, though, we can come to some agreement sure. with, with the owner. Yeah. Uh, hey, could you make the windows look this? Windows are so important oh, yes. in an historic yes. house. Yes. Uh, can you can you do this with the window? Can yeah. you change the configuration? And usually right. we can hammer these things out. Sure. And uh, everybody's happy. Yeah. So we. So you're not going to paint your um, your your house like pumpkin orange, or that. <laughs> I certainly am not. <laughs> no. Oh, all right. Well, I thought I would try. All right. <laughs> you know, but um, I'm sure you must get uh, interesting requests and um, and all. But it's well, nice. you yeah. know, they're all pretty reasonable. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, people that live in an historic yeah. district, yeah. they live there because they like it. Yes. And and uh, they don't want to mess it up. And, and, of course, the big value in an historic district, or one of the big values, is that you're never going to have the – be living in a colonial yeah. historic district, and then you're going to have some glass box right next to you, which is yeah. just going to – change the whole feel of the place and, and also an individual property can uh can fall under the uh, the jurisdiction of well we, we have four of them yes in greenwich okay in in those cases though we don't really have the have to have a vote mm -hmm. because the owner themselves is saying i want this to be an historic property yeah. and in every one of those cases it's it's by someone who loves the property so much uh, that they just can't bear to see it uh, torn down. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean that they can't put an addition out the back. That's right. Doesn't mean that you can't fix up the inside. Yeah. Doesn't mean you can't bring it up the co. You know, do everything to make it uh, a modern house. But th they just couldn't say stand to see the wrecking ball uh, yeah. take the whole thing away. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
yeah, which we've seen an awful lot of. Yes, yeah, yes, so, yeah, that's so for that's sure. really good. That's now, as we as we start to um, as we start to close, I wanted to ask you about what is the future of um, historic districts in either in general or in Greenwich, and 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 what about the commission? And do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm always hopeful that there will be more historic districts. Yes. They're not easy to, to put together. You really have to have a neighborhood that is fairly cohesive, and, and you need somebody that's going to push it in, yes. the, in the commission. I mean, we can do that, and we will do everything we can to help them. But uh, you need somebody on the ground, hopefully, that says, hey, you know, we got to do this, or this is going to happen, right. or we're going to have this over here. Don't you love it the way it is? Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, I'm always trying to tell people it doesn't mean that it's etched in stone, that you can never make a change. Right. You just have to get a certificate of appropriateness. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful, but, uh, you know, that that's a tough road. I'm hoping that we're going to see more of these historic overlay uh, applications mm-hmm. and that, I'm, uh, that that's going to, you know, probably be our best bet for preserving uh, some old properties. Sure. I, I would close by saying that if anybody is, you know, wants to push historic preservation – uh, that, you know, Greenwich is, is get, going through the POCD right now. POCD is? Is, is Plan of Conservation and Development, right. which they do every 10 years. Oh, yes. And it's sort of it's the guideline of this is where we want to go with the town. These are the goals that we're looking for. Yeah. And uh, they've had a, a series of meetings around town. I don't know if any more are still coming up. Mm-hmm. But if they are, they should go to them. And But if not, uh, shoot an email off to... Uh, our director of planning and zoning, uh, Katie DeLuca, who's mm-hmm. terrific. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she's she would love to see more historic preservation because yeah. I don't think anybody, any of us who have lived in town all our lives, as I have, yes. you know, like to see these beautiful old houses coming down and mm-hmm. and destroying the fabric uh, of the town yeah. that we all love. Oh, yes, indeed. Now, uh, Stephen Bishop, you are the chairman of the Greenwich Historic District Commission. I want to thank you very, very much for being with us on Talk of the Town on Greenwich Town for all seasons. It's such a pleasure to have you, and you are welcome here anytime. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. My friends, thank you very much for tuning in to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. As always, Talk of the Town features insightful stories and conversations with Greenwich, Connecticut history makers and personalities. On today's show, we featured an encore conversation that I had with Stephen Bishop, the chair of Greenwich, Connecticut's Historic District Commission. As you know, the commission has been in the news recently with preservation efforts underway regarding the Samuel Ferris House, built in 1760 in Riverside, as well as the Hevemeyer Building, on Greenwich Avenue in the the downtown area of Greenwich. The Greenwich Historical Society relies on private support to deliver an array of programs and services in Greenwich, Connecticut. Your contributions advance its mission by funding the following areas. Education and public programs for all ages. Exhibitions and collections to preserve and maintain our heritage. Historic preservation to ensure that our community's significant structures are not lost. And library and archives to keep our history alive for the future. The Society preserves and interprets Greenwich history to strengthen our community's connection to our past, to each other, and our future. The Greenwich Historical Society chronicles the past, but the future is in your hands. You're invited to give and also to join the Greenwich Historical Society by calling 203-869-6899 or going on the web to greenwichhistory.org.
Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated and revised edition of another Greenwich history book, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Going through 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society, and it was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr., another descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut in the 17th century whose numerous philanthropic bequests have advanced the preservation of the town's history for many years. On today's show, we'll gaze back in time to the year 1778. In January of that year, the General Assembly orders a company of 24 men, commanded by a lieutenant, to be voluntarily enlisted and stationed at Greenwich, quote, to do the duty and service of artillerymen, unquote. January 12, 1778, at a special town meeting, the Articles of Confederation are read and approved. Bezaliel Brown is appointed barracks master to supply troops with, quote, food and other necessities, unquote. On the 6th of February, 1778, Sylvanus Marshall is appointed lieutenant of a company of artillery stationed at Greenwich. On February 21st, Jabez Fitch of Greenwich is appointed paymaster for the regiment and forces under the command of Colonel Thomas Meade, stationed at Sawpits, today known as Portchester, and in the adjacent area. On February 28, 1778, the Council agrees with the Governor to write to Major Thompson, commanding officer of Colonel Nixon's battalion at Farmington, requesting him to march with all convenient speed to Greenwich, pursuant to General Putnam's orders, leaving the sick and unfit at Farmington. On September 8th of the year 1778, three companies under Colonel Webb are uh, at Greenwich are ordered to New Haven to dig entrenchments. And finally, in October of 1778, the General Assembly requests the governor to order companies from Colonel Innes's regiment, commanded by Captain John Yates and Captain David Olmsted, quote, to march forthwith to the town of Greenwich for defense of that town, and also to represent to General Washington the defenseless condition of the southwestern part of this state, unquote. My friends, Greenwich Before 2000 is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. To learn more, visit GreenwichLibrary.org. It's time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's history, my friends, to the Gilded Age era when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 was published. It's a richly illustrated book, revealing a wealth of detailed information in history. On today's show, we'll visit the largest of the great estates, Conyers Manor, in Greenwich's backcountry. Constructed in 1904, it was designed by Don Barber for Edmund C. Converse, and it was a private domain unlike any other. The concept of a large country estate as the capstone to a successful business career was epitomized by Conyers Manor, 
built by Edmund Cogswell Converse, who lived from 1849 to 1921. Converse named his estate Conyers Manor, after the Old English spelling for Converse. Not only did Conyers Manor overshadow the other grandly conceived homes in Greenwich, it was also one of the most profitable estates in the Northeast. The estate had a tremendous economic impact in both Greenwich and nearby Banksville, New York. Tons of produce and dairy products were sold in both towns, and Conyers Manor employed a large number of townspeople. After having spent several summers in the Bellhaven section of Greenwich, Edmund Converse hired a Greenwich realtor, William Smith, to acquire a parcel of 1,000 acres of land in the backcountry. Several pieces were put together by 1904, and construction of the main buildings began. By 1913, Converse owned 1,330 acres of farmland and woodland in northern Greenwich and southern Northcastle, New York. It was a private domain unlike any other. Edmund Converse was born in Boston, one of five children of Sarah Peabody Converse and James Cogswell Converse. The elder Converse, a Boston businessman, founded the National Tube Works and served as its president in the 1870s. Young Edmund was reared in Boston and graduated from Boston Latin School in 1869. According to later accounts, the family suffered some financial reverses at this time, so that young Converse was unable to attend Harvard College for which he had prepared. Instead, he went to work as an apprentice at National Tube Works, which was relocated from Boston to McKeesport, Pennsylvania, at about the same time. In 1882, he was granted a patent for his invention of lock joints for water and gas tubing, a significant industrial development, which, among his other patents, brought millions of dollars worth of orders to the company. During this period, Edmund Converse married Jessie McDonough Green, who died in 1912. Their happy marriage on January 2, 1879, produced three children. Antoinette McDonough, Edmund Cogswell, Jr., and Catherine Peabody Converse. By 1899, Converse had become a general manager in the corporation and subsequently was associated with William Nelson Cromwell in an attempt to combine the principal wrought iron and steel tube concerns in the country. Acting finally as agents for J.P. Morgan & Company, they brought about an amalgamation of about 20 such companies. In 1893, Converse was elected president of this enlarged firm, which was later incorporated into the U.S. Steel Corporation. For his contributions and participation, Converse became a large stockholder of U.S. Steel Corporation, as well as a vice president and director. Thus, by the age of 52, Edmund C. Converse had had a notable impact on American business. His interests in manufacturing corporations must have waned during the period of U.S. Steel's formation, for he retired from the, from the firm in 1902. During the next 15 years, Converse was occupied with banking, serving simultaneously as president of three major New York banks, Liberty National, Astor Trust, and the Bankers Trust Company. Converse had many interests other than business. Certainly, the formation of Conyers Manor was one of them. 
After having secured the first 600 acres, he hired three people who were critical to the development of the estate. Don Barber was chosen architect for this unique commission. George A. Drew was hired away from Massachusetts Agricultural College in Amherst, Massachusetts, to be superintendent of the estate. He is credited with the early site planning and the farm layout, the orchards, and the water system. Henry Wilde was fully employed for eight years designing and supervising the aesthetic plantings on the property. Don Barber's designs for Conyers Farm were drawn from several sources. He was a proponent of the English country manor as the model for estate-sized summer homes, an inclination tempered by his training, which included studies at Columbia University and the École des Beaux-Arts in Paris. Barber formed his own practice in 1900. His commission from Converse then was critical to the early development of his career. It included the design of the so-called manor house as well as the gatehouse, the James Cross Converse House, the Strong House, the eight greenhouses, the manor garage, the manor stables, the boat house, the clock tower, the dairy barn, the poultry barn, the superintendent's house built for George and Rachel Drew, the farm garage, and the blacksmith's shop. The vast extent of Conyers Manor is evident when one considers that in addition to the buildings designed by Barber, all the original farmhouses on the property were retained and used for housing for nearly 200 employees. Additional buildings were added as needed and were constructed of similar materials. By 1913, there were over 40 buildings on the property. The estate was divided into several areas, each with a particular function. The site chosen for the manor house was the crest of a hill at the southeast corner of the property, from which there were views of Long Island Sound. Nearby were all of the buildings related to the manor house itself. The main farm buildings were located slightly to the west and south. The orchards and cold storage barns were to the northeast, where the topography and microclimate were best suited for fruit culture. The northwestern part of the property was left in woods or planted with orchards, although certain support buildings were located there. The estate was unified by an internal road system. One entered Conyers Manor from the southeast corner of the property. There at the gate was located the first building constructed. The gatehouse was built of stone quarried on the property, as were all the other buildings designed by Barber. This attractive, if modest, gatehouse was the home of the head gardener and his family. Its stone walls and its steeply pitched shake roof were in the style of the manor house. The area by the gate was planted with specimen spruces. Evergreens, rambler roses, and clematis were planted near the house itself. Evergreen plantings lined sections of the drive to the manor house. The drive along its one-mile route to the house passed a small lake designed as a woodland and water garden. It featured Japanese-style bridges and woodland walks around the lake and over a spillway. Mallard and pintail ducks and gray-like geese lived on the lake and nested on its small island. A larger lake, which supplied the estate's water, was located in the northern section of the property. Left wild but well-stocked with game fish, it had a stone Adirondack-style boathouse 
in which a launch was kept. Children of the farm staff recall happy days fishing and swimming there. From this lake, Converse gave water to the town of Greenwich during a winter of drought. The drive continued up the side of the hill with woods to the right and hayfields visible to the left. It swung around to approach the manor from the north. The manor house was an imposing four-story stone building with a steeply pitched green-style roof with triangular dormer windows and gables at either end. Wooden balconies projected from the second floor. Shutters accented the windows. The overall stylistic feeling was of a European country villa with elements borrowed from English, French, and German sources. The overall dimensions were approximately 188 by 88 feet. It was built of stone quarried at the farm, concrete, brick, and steel to make it fireproof. On entering the manor house from the Port Couture, the visitor passed through a marble-floored vestibule. To the right was Converse's officer den. Across the vestibule was the salon. Directly in front of the visitor was the large two-story living hall, which opened onto the terrace. Behind the living hall fireplace was a billiard room. Continuing forward through the living hall, a visitor would find the library to the left, a dining room directly ahead, and a large butler's pantry to the right. None of the service facilities was on the main floor. A large portion of the basement was used for the kitchen, pantries, and storage. Supplies and food were brought up by a dumbwaiter. The salon was one of the more elegant rooms in Conyers Manor. The walls were hung with silk, and the furniture was in the style of Louis XV. The paintings, however, were the main attraction. Best known was Sir Anthony Van Dyke's portrait of Mademoiselle de... I hope I pronounce this right... Contingis. Most of the two dozen other canvases were late 19th century French works from the Barbizon and the Beaux-Arts schools. Charles Dobigny's The Oisner and Vers, 1873, J.B.C. Carotte's Le Vieux Pont, Nantes, and E.C. Jacques' Forest de Fontainebleau were highlights of this collection. The living hall at the center of the house was the principal entertainment area. Its two-story height and intricate, if heavy, paneling made the room imposing. Above an Italian-carved stone fireplace was the balcony, which gave access to the second-floor bedrooms. A pipe organ was encased in the wall adjacent to the dining room. The organ console faced the fireplace and was located between doors leading to the terrace. In this room, many examples of Converse's principal hobbies were displayed. He was a passionate collector of oriental pottery and bronzes, as well as snuff boxes, ancient glass, and Persian fans. The many display cabinets, as well as potted plums, palms and tapestry fabrics, gave the room a Victorian air. Converse's smoking room was a retreat from the rest of the house. It was his office for the estate, but also contained a steam room and just below, a bowling alley which was used by the manor bowling teams. The ceiling of the office featured plastic OG tracery, and the walls were dressed in tooled and painted leather. The library at Conyers Farm projected east from the central block of the house at the end of the living hall. 
Filled with books on a range of subjects, it was where the Converses hung their English portrait paintings, including Thomas Gainsborough's portrait of Count Rumford. The painting had special meaning for Converse, as he was descended, through his mother, from this man. Nearby were two portraits by Henry Rayburn, Sir Thomas Lawrence's portrait of Lady Wheatley, and a portrait by George Romney. The room was decorated in tapestry cloth with a changeable ground and mulberry plush edged with gold galloon trimming. The furnishings were oak with the side chairs upholstered in needlework. Converse was fond of specimen game hunting and had a substantial gun collection. Hanging in the dining room were trophy heads, a moose, a caribou, a bison, two reindeer, and a stag. The dining room, paneled in dark wood, had heavy beams across the ceiling. Above the large carved fireplace hung Benjamin Constant's painting, Interior of a Harem. The dining room furniture was Italianate in style. The chairs were upholstered in leather. On one sideboard, Frederick Remington's bronze, coming through the rye, was displayed. The second floor of the manor house consisted of bedrooms accessible from the balcony around the living hall. In addition to the master's suite, there were four large bedrooms, each with a fireplace, silk draperies, and a tiled bath with elaborate fixtures. The master suite was located over the salon, vestibule, and Converse's office. Mrs. Converse's sitting room was the same size as the salon below and featured a delicately carved fireplace. The large master bath, measuring 17 by 18 feet, was placed between the sitting room and the Converse's bedroom. Running the manor house fell to Converse's butler and valet, named Walker. He was recalled by a family member as being an imposing figure, quote, who was garbed in a cutaway during the daytime in full dress suit and white tie at night. His assistant was a handsome young Englishman, Ernest Kendall. They were in charge of the household staff of 19, most of whom lived on the third-floor servants' rooms. Visitors to the manor could reach the terrace from the living hall and the dining room. It overlooked a long mirror pool planted with water lilies and surrounded by landscaped gardens. The rose gardens were to the south between the manor house and the greenhouse complex. From the eight greenhouses, came both flowers and out-of-season fruits, such as grapes, cantaloupes, oranges, lemons, and nectarines. A full-time staff of 16 was employed to tend the delicate crops grown in the greenhouses. Additional buildings related to the manor complex included the fully-equipped six-bay manor garage, where cars for the Converse family were kept. To the north of the main house were the manor stables, which housed the family's horses and carriages. Its most notable features, according to former employees, were a central water fountain made of gray marble and the marble feed troughs in each stall. Converse built two private residences on the estate for members of his family. The James Converse house was built for Converse's brother's widow, Louise Kainfelder Dunshi Converse. It was designed in the style of the other manor buildings and had its own carriage house and pool house. For his daughter Catherine and her husband Benjamin Strom, Converse built a similar 26-room house. It, too, had a separate carriage house with living quarters above. 
Both houses were of the same construction as the main house. They were, however, gabled in a more picturesque fashion than the manor house. In the fall of 1912, Jessie Converse died at Conyers Manor. She was in her 60s. Two days after her death, Louise Converse, Mr. Converse's sister-in-law, died very suddenly. In less than a week, the 63-year-old banker lost two people who were very important to him. One of the greatest surprises to Converse's friends and business associates was his remarriage on January 30, 1914, to Mary Edith Dunshee. Converse had known her for some time, as she was Louise Converse's sister, and had lived for several years with Louise Converse in her home at Conyers Manor. The fine reputation of Conyers Manor as a farm was created by George A. Drew. Drew, his wife Rachel, and their children lived near the center of the farming complex. He supervised the staff of nearly 200 people. Drew began to clear and replant farmlands for fruit crops soon after, after Converse purchased his land. By 1910, the or apple orchards were producing hundreds of bushels of fruit that were both sold locally and out of state. But apples were only a portion of the produce from Conyers, farm, Conyers Manor Farm. An account of in the Greenwich Graphic notes that, quote, the peach crop is valued at between $30,000 and $40,000 a year, and hay valued at $30,000 is produced. A ton of asparagus a day is sent to the market in the season. Pears, plums, strawberries are grown in large quantities, unquote. George Drew also supervised the dairy herd that produced thousands of gallons of milk and cream for the manor and for sale. Butter, stamped ECC, was made and packed in the dairy. The E-shaped dairy barn, which housed the herd and had hay storage and apartments above, dwarfed all the other buildings. Like the manor house, it was built of stone with fanciful dormers and vents. Around 1911, Drew hired a poultryman. Shortly afterwards, accounts show approximately 2,000 Rhode Island reds and leghorns were kept as well as smaller numbers of pheasant and quail. That venture was as successful as all others under Drew's supervision and made Conyers Manor self-sufficient, except for red meat. Edmund Converse died on April 4, 1921. Most of his estate went to his widow and to his children in spendthrift trusts. He made significant philanthropic gifts, and he remembered each of his employees in his will. None of the family, however, was able to maintain the vast property, or was especially interested in doing so. The second Mrs. Converse visited the estate occasionally, but preferred to live in Europe. In 1927, she put Conyers Manor up for sale. Frederick Sansom purchased the estate and immediately changed its name to Homewood. He had grandiose plans, but fortune was against him. Because he had purchased the property with an $800,000 mortgage and had other business liabilities, he was unable during the Depression to continue holding the estate. According to the terms of his mortgage and the trusts of Converse, Conyers Manor reverted to the Banker's Trust Company in 1931. The bank took over management of the estate, keeping the dairy and orchards producing under the, under the supervision of a capable superintendent until the late 1930s. Today, the, the remains of the manor house have been torn down. The property has been sensitively subdivided. 
those original buildings which have not fallen prey to time and vandals are being reconstructed. Fields are being cleared, and the woods and landscaping are being restored where doing this is economically feasible. Though the era of Conyers Manor is over, glimpses of its glorious past can still be seen and appreciated. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. As Christmas and the December holidays are here, let us cherish family and friends this holiday season, and with it a season filled with warm moments and delightful memories. The magic of Christmas and holiday traditions come alive on Saturday, the 10th and the 17th of December, with Christmas in Koskob, a holiday tour of the Bush Holly House. On this special holiday tour of the Bush Holly House, visitors will enjoy a festive walk through early 20th century Christmas and holiday traditions enjoyed by adults and children of the Holly family in the era of the Coscobart colony and learn about early American wintertime and holiday celebrations as observed in the era of the new nation among Bush family and their Greenwich neighbors. Tours last approximately 45 minutes and are appropriate for adults and families with children ages five and older. Masks are required for staff and visitors on Bush Holly House tours. Now to learn more and to register, please visit GreenwichHistory.org. The Greenwich Historical Society's Holiday Family Festival is scheduled for Saturday, the 10th of December, at the Bush Holly House campus, 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, from 4.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Bring your entire family for photos with Santa. Visit our festive dollhouse display in the historic barn, complete with gingerbread decorating and crafts in Santa's workshop. In our museum lobby, admire the festive wonderland that is the Festival of Trees, featuring community-crafted trees by local designers, merchants, nonprofit organizations, and garden clubs. Choose your favorite of the trees and bid in the silent auction to take it home. Take part in the, the holiday cheer and enjoy a winter beverage while listening to performances by the Connecticut Yuletide Carolers. Enjoy delicious treats from the Crispy Melty Cheese Truck as they dish out classic grilled cheese and tomato soup. That sounds really good. Explore the Historical Society's beautiful illuminated grounds. Delight in the artistic prowess of professional ice sculptor Bill Bywater as he creates a wintry marvel from giant blocks of ice. Warm up outside by the fire with some s'mores and hot cocoa to round out an evening of holiday fun. My friends, please register and admission is required in advance. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. I hope to see you there. 
Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, and gifted storyteller. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. He used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale, and no, I have no idea where that came from, but he used it when he was writing about what he called a cracker barrel stuff through his column, The Judge's Corner. Now, years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich published articles and put them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. And boy, are we grateful to Frank for doing that. On today's show, I'll share with you column number 90. It's dated from November 20th, 1930. Its title urges hydro replacement for Costco Powerhouse. Actor Edwin Booth lived on site. Today, this is Coscob Park, a stone's throw away, or at least I think it is, from the Coscob train station and overlooking the Mianus River and, in the distance, Long Island Sound. So sit back and relax and enjoy. At the annual meeting of the Greenwich Tree Association, attended by 32 women and one man, the lecturer who followed the business meeting said a lot of good things, most of which were well-known. But what he said about the bad things were not so well known. Oh, dear. Among them was the smoke nuisance applicable possibly to Bridgeport and the factory towns in the Naukatuck Valley. Our town is pretty free from the kind of smoke he alluded to, but a lady in the audience spoke right out in meeting condemning the Pekoskob powerhouse. The news columns have recently been giving some attention to the complaints from Koskob on that subject, and the lady was quite right, but she had no intimation of what is likely to happen to that Koskob powerhouse. It would be a great relief to the people of Koskob if Cedarcliff, quote-unquote, were restored to its former comeliness. There are very few, there are a very few people readers of the press, who can recall the rustic appearance of that section of Greenwich before Coscob had a railroad station, and Charles Barris, the eminent playwright, author of, quote, The Black Crook, unquote, had built the house still standing and occupied by the superintendent of the Coscob Electricity Factory. That was more than half a century ago, and it is scarcely to be expected, especially in a meeting of women, that anyone has any knowledge of such a remote affair. But it was indeed a spot of beauty. The prolific growth of red cedars graced the top of the cliff and clung to its steep sides nearly to the water's edge. Barris cut enough of them off to locate his house, and the others remaining suggested the name of Cedarcliff, quote-unquote. The state of Connecticut had not forgotten that terrible day, May 4th, 1863, when a train ran into the open drawbridge at South Norwalk and killed 80 passengers. And so a very drastic law had been enacted that all trains before crossing any drawbridge should make a full stop. That made Koskob a stopping place for those who had the courage to jump off at just the right time. But poor Barris jumped from the Boston Night Express at the wrong time and lost his life amid the rocks below the west end of the bridge. Edwin Booth 
was a friend of Charles Barras. Possibly out of regard for the family, he purchased the place, and he and his wife and daughter Edwina made it their home for several years, during which time the Coscob Railroad Station was established. It is said that Booth never cared much for it. It was too far away from New York. He liked the world of the city by day and night. And as he tried to like it here, he bought a pair of of sorrel ponies, which he never learned how to drive. But he tried, and once too many times, when the little team ran into a telegraph pole, threw the eminent actor out and broke his leg. After that, he was not often at Cedar Cliff, and the house was empty for some time. Hmm. Then came Andrew Luke as an owner. His home for several years had been on Upper King Street. His business was in New York. It was before the days of anything but dirt roads, which meant mud roads during the painful spring months when the frost was coming out. It often took him longer to drive from the Porchester station to his home than the train took from New York to the station. People were talking about macadam and were asking for the derivation of the word. Mr. Luke had a delightful home when he arrived here, but one day he said to the real estate broker, J.W. Atwater, quote, Get me a house somewhere near a railroad station. I don't care if it's alongside of it. I am tired of this long drive, unquote. And so Atwater located him at Cedar Cliff. After Mr. Luke's death, the railroad company acquired the property for $40,000, built the powerhouse under the management of Vice President McHenry, and installed therein machinery costing one and a half millions. It was a marvel. People interested in such structures came for many miles to see it. It has constantly been enlarged both as to the grounds and to electric units within. It has just acquired a large, ex a large expense, an adequate supply of water, for it uses thousands of gallons every day, and yet can it be true that all this is approaching its end? Everything has an end. To run the Costco powerhouse takes many shiploads of coal and makes the smoke complained about. Water power is a famous and cheap generator of electricity. The Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad over the Cascade Range of the Rocky Mountains has nearly a thousand miles of electrically equipped trains generated by water power. Everybody along the fjords of Norway, living in the smallest houses on the smallest farms, with the most diminutive cow stables, uses electricity without stint. The sound of falling water is always in the ears, and it gives them the electric light and power for their churns and crosscut saws. Why should not the New Haven Road command water power? Hmm. This is the story. Quote, the Long River, or the Connecticut, as the Indians called it, is of great volume and of wonderful power. It has been dammed at different points, and the power used to generate electricity that is distributed as far away as towns in southern New Hampshire. It bestows its light and power favors upon hundreds of towns in the other New England states. At some point near the mouth of this mighty river will be built a great powerhouse greater than has ever before been built. It will supply electricity for all the New Haven Railroad lines to Boston and its branches. 
It will sell to the Boston and Albany Railroad, to streetcars as long as they exist, or are not already supplied with the same source. If the story is true, there will be millions in it, and the lady who spoke out in meeting will have no further cause for complaint. My friends, are you looking for a keepsake Christmas holiday gift for a family member? Well, I sure hope you are. Baby boomers and their families will love these free verse stories. What am I talking about? Well, Mianus Village by Jack T. Scully captures what it was like growing up in the 1950s and 1960s. This highly acclaimed collection is now available as an audiobook as well as on paperback. Jack, by the way, was a guest of mine, and uh, it it is a wonderful book, a very, very heartwarming one. Um, And um, it it talks about Greenwich people after winning World War II, the greatest generation of Americans who came marching home and sired the baby boomer generation that, well, quite frankly, I belong to. (laughs) Anyway, Maya's Village, it's it's a fantastic book. Um, it is, as I said, available on audiobook as well as paperback. Um, and um, click the, well, I have a, a website for you where you can purchase the book. Go to author Jack T. Scully, that's spelled S C U L L Y dot com forward slash buy B U Y dash book B O O K. So author Jack T. Scully dot com forward slash buy dash book. It's a great one, everybody, and it makes a fantastic Christmas or holiday gift. Well, for over a century, members of the Rockefeller family have made Greenwich their home, and it was exactly 100 years ago that we lost one of those very famous Rockefeller family members, and that was William G. Rockefeller. Um, I have the news that I wanted to share with you. This comes from the Greenwich News and uh, Graphic and other sources. Um, And uh, this is dated from Friday, December 1st, 1922. The headline is, W.G. Rockefeller dies in New York, son of William Rockefeller, who died only five months ago. Five months after the death of his father, the late William Rockefeller, William G. Rockefeller of Greenwich and New York, and a nephew of John D. Rockefeller, died last night at his townhome, 292 Madison Avenue, New York. He was taken ill on Monday, and pneumonia developed, causing his death. He spent most of his summers on his estate at Lake Avenue, Greenwich, which adjoins the property of his brother, Percy A. Rockefeller. He had lived rather a secluded life, and when not in Greenwich or New York, he went to his father's private park in the Adirondacks. He was very fond of dogs, and at Greenwich maintained an extensive kennel of beagles, which won many prizes at bench shows. He was popular with the boys in Greenwich because he used to allow them to play baseball on his grounds Sundays. When complaints were made, he declared that he would let the boys play so long as golf was played at the clubs. (laughs) Mr. Rockefeller was the oldest of the four children of the late Mr. and Mrs. William Rockefeller. He was born in 1870 and was graduated from Yale in 1892. Four years later, he married Miss S.L.C. Stillman, daughter of the late Mr. and Mrs. James Stillman. 
His youngest brother, Percy A. Rockefeller, in 1901, married her sister. The sisters of Mr. Rockefeller are Mrs. D. Hunter McAlpin and Mrs. Hartley Dodge. The oldest of the children, William A. Rockefeller, married three years ago Miss Florence Lincoln, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Frederick W. Lincoln of Greenwich and New York. They have lived here and in New York since their marriage. The other children are Godfrey S. and J. Stillman Rockefeller, students at Yale, J. Sterling Rockefeller, who is attending Taft School, and Miss Almira Rockefeller. Mr. Rockefeller was trained for business under the direction of his father, but showed more interest in copper than in oil when the Amalgamated Copper Company was organized. He was elected secretary. Later, he became, he became associated with other copper organizations, severing his connection with the Amalgamated Company. He was vice president and director of the Brooklyn Union Gas Company and a director of the Inspiration Consolidated Copper Company, the New York Mutual Gas Light Company, the Oregon Short Line Railroad Company, the Oregon Washington Railroad and Navigation Company, and the Union Pacific Railroad Company. He was a member of the Union Club, Union League Club, University, Metropolitan Automobile, Engineers, and Writing Clubs of New York, the Sleepy Hollow Country Club in, at Scarborough, New York, and the Apawamas at Rye, New York, and the Field Club in Gren or of Greenwich. He was also a member of Alpha Delta Phi at Yale. No arrangements for the funeral have been announced at this time. Now, I have some additional news um, about that. And this comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, which was uh, published a, a week later on Friday, December 8th, 1922. It's a very short piece, um, but it's uh, titled Mr. Rockefeller's Funeral. Body placed in vault awaiting Mrs. Rockefeller's return is the headline. The funeral service for William G. Rockefeller were held privately Sunday afternoon at his New York home to 92 Madison Avenue. Reverend Dr. M. George Thompson, rector of Christ Church Greenwich, of which church Mr. Rockefeller was a member, officiated. The remains were placed in a vault until the arrival of Mrs. Rockefeller and her son, Godfrey, who were abroad at the time of Mr. Rockefeller's death. Mr. Rockefeller, whose summer home is on Lake Avenue, Greenwich, it is believed caught cold while attending the Yale-Harvard football game on Saturday, November 25th, that would be 1922, which later developed into pneumonia. He died at his New York home the following Thursday. Well, on November 30th, 1923, the Greenwich News and Graphic published an article by L.B. Edwards in the column Greenwich Life as it is and was about the Standard Oil Company and its relationship to, uh, to Greenwich. And of course, this features the Rockefeller family. So I would like to share this with you, especially since on today's show we have marked the 100th anniversary of the passing of William G. Rockefeller. The story goes as follows. When William Rockefeller came to Greenwich with his family in 1878 to make his suburban home, the Standard Oil Company, though a very wealthy corporation at that time, may be said to have been in its, in its infancy. 
His brother, John D. Rockefeller, and William were the businessmen prominent in the development of the great industry. John D., though not attracted to Greenwich to locate a suburban home, visited his brother William and, like Andrew Carnegie, when he lived in Greenwich, was seen walking on the streets of Greenwich. He was a short, stout man at the time and very active in his movements. The company was not called a trust then. The era of preferred stocks, A stocks, B stocks, debenture, serial, and other kinds of bonds, and the other intricate methods of financing joint stock companies of the present day, which were as difficult to understand as most persons as problems of higher mathematics had not arrived. Joint stock companies issued what is now generally known as common stock, only one kind of stock. Comparatively little of the stock of joint stock companies was held by Greenwich residents. Those having money to invest usually placed it on first mortgages in real estate, deposited it in savings banks, or bought real estate. The stocks mostly held was that of the Ridgefield and Porchester Railroad Company, which was purchased more to promote the construction of the railroad, which was largely a Greenwich enterprise, than than with any expectation of any immediate profit from the investment. Stock of the New York and New Haven Railroad Company, stock of New York banks, the most highly prized being that of the Chemical Bank, one of the then big banks, which paid annual dividends of 100%, the par value being $1,000 a share. Not much of it was owned in Greenwich, however. But William Rockefeller's coming to Greenwich attracted the attention of the local investors to the stock of the Standard Oil Company, then selling about $80 per share and paying large dividends, and there were a, they were a good many of Greenwich residents who bought the stock mainly because they had confidence in Mr. Rockefeller's business ability and knew he held many thousands of dollars worth of the stock, and they never regretted the purchase. There was one resident who had been struggling along for several years in all endeavor to establish a real estate business, but real estate was not much in demand at that time and sales were few. He had accumulated about $4,000 and invested it in stock of the Standard Oil Company that returned him an annual for years $4,000, so it is said, the stock becoming worth $800 per share and his holdings that cost $4,000, about 50 shares, were valued at $40,000. Another man, who was a gardener for some of the wealthy families, invested his small savings of $1,200 in stock of the Standard Oil Company, and for years his annual income from the investment was $1,200, and his stock became worth $5,000. Mr. Rockefeller was frequently approached by young men for positions in the offices of the Standard Oil Company. If they were desirable applicants, he would tell them the salary at the start was small, only $10 per week, and the meager salary discouraged most of those who asked for positions. There was one Greenwich young man, however, who, quote, took the job, unquote. He had saved a few hundred dollars and was observing the affairs in the office of the Standard Oil Company and soon learned that the Rockefellers were purchasing more of the stock of the Standard Oil Company and increasing their holdings. He invested his few hundred dollars in the stock, which he hypothecated in 
a New York bank for a loan, investing in more of the stock and borrowing again from the bank on the stock. He kept this buying and borrowing up until he had accumulated a considerable amount of the stock, selling a sufficient quantity of his holdings to pay the money borrowed and keep the balance which made him a wealthy man. Another Greenwich young man, really only a boy, went to work in the office of the company at a small salary and afterwards became prominently identified with the company and also a wealthy man. The increase in the value of the Standard Oil Company's stock then attracted the attention of some of the local residents having money to invest in Wall Street speculation. And Mr. Rockefeller was often approached for tips on the market, which, so far as anybody knows, he never gave. (laughs) After he purchased the farm on Lake Avenue, he would frequently go there to inspect the work of the laying of his race course. Which, on which he afterward speeded his fast pair of horses, Independence and Cleora. And if I may interject here, that race course still exists today, but not as a race course, but as a residential street. It's called Rockwood Lane. How about that? All right, uh, back to the story. There was a farmer living in the vicinity who would often meet him and ask for tips on the market. Seated with the farmer on a pile of hay in the barn, the two discussed business, stock values, and profitable investment. The farmer wanted information on stocks that were to increase in value so that he could go into Wall Street and speculate in the stock market. And Mr. Rockefeller is reported to have said to him, quote, Keep out of Wall Street, buy real estate, or invest your money in safe first mortgages on the best kind of security, improved and unimproved real estate, unquote. Greenwich residents who had purchased stock of the Standard Oil Company held on to it, and many of them would often speak with apparent delight of how much Standard Oil stock they held and the big dividends they received. It was not until later years that the big Standard Oil Trust Company, one if not the largest corporation in the world, was organized and preferred stock began to be issued, that was quickly purchased despite the high prices asking for it. Much regret was felt among the Greenwich holders of the stock when, because of the agitation against trusts, laws were passed forbidding them, and the Standard Oil Trust was dissolved, but they received the equivalent in stock of other companies, of which the Standard Oil Company was the holding company and still continue to receive the large dividends. Thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the 6th of December 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. Our town was founded on July 18, 1640. Now, since those early humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has grown to become, in the 21st century, one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. As always, the Greenwich at Town for All Season show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. If you'd like, please contact me at Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past 
shows by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 13th of December, 2022. In the meantime, I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. As we start to usher in the holiday season, I wish all of you a magical and merry week ahead. Enjoy it to the fullest. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye now. Thank you.